Well, church, this morning we arrive at the final mark of the four that we've identified as essential to the church, namely, and in the order that we have considered them to date, the ordinance of baptism, people, the gospel, and today we examine the second ordinance, the Lord's Supper. Now, as we've pointed out, this order was not intended to imply a place of spiritual priority historical determination, even sequence of physical experience, simply calendar convenience. We basically had baptisms to celebrate on October 27th. Today is our celebrated or planned Lord's Supper service, and so there's no significance to our order. However, there is a symmetry to our series as we began with an ordinance, and now we end with an ordinance where one commentator wrote of our present subject, Ever since the beginning of the existence of the Church of Christ, the celebration of Holy Communion has occupied such a central place in the life of the faithful that the history of its institution by the Savior that last evening before the crucifixion was undoubtedly one of the first things in which every new convert to Christianity had been thoroughly instructed. So, While we're not saving the best till last, as the saying goes, I do believe we're going to see together that the supper is special. The supper is special. Thus, in light of the supper's significance to the church and its place as our study's subject for today, would you open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, if you haven't already? Luke, chapter 22, and find verse 7. Now, each of the synoptic Gospels record Christ's inauguration of what Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.20 calls the Lord's Supper, hence our reference to it as such. And so we could have studied any one of the three, Mark's Gospel, Matthew, or Luke's accounts, but I've chosen Luke's for us this morning. And so, Luke 22, beginning in verse 7, I invite you to follow along. The doctor writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. May God bless the public reading of his word. 
Church, before we consider what this text reveals regarding the supper, I'd like to first reiterate the threefold reasoning we gave behind our belief in this ordinance as a mark of the church. And if you were with us when we looked at baptism several weeks ago, then these points should be familiar. But for those who weren't, they're all rooted in the gospel, which as we established this past Sunday is the preeminent mark for the church. It's a belief growing out of the Protestant Reformation and captured, as we've seen, in numerous confessions, such as the Heidelberg Confession, which we referenced last week. So, three reasons behind the ordinance of the Lord's Supper as an essential mark for the church. But the first reason is that Jesus celebrated the supper. Jesus celebrated the supper. And we've all heard the testimony to this as provided us in Luke's Gospel. And as I said, there are similar references in both of the other synoptic Gospels. So, Christ celebrated the supper and as the head of the church, according to Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, we who are his followers and therefore his body, we should desire to emulate our head, right? Not only emulate, though, but we should also desire to obey Christ. It's our second point. We should obey Christ, who when establishing the supper and describing the symbolism, declared, do this in remembrance of me. So not only did Jesus celebrate the supper, but he also called for his followers to do so regularly in remembrance of him. And then third, just as we saw with baptism, the Lord's Supper serves as a, a symbol, a picture, if you will, of the gospel. A gospel message I believe most succinctly conveyed in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, where Paul writes, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised according to the Scriptures on the third day, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And that's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. And as we've seen, in order for a church to be a church, they must be a holy people. Holy people made so by their belief in this Gospel and their celebration of the ordinances. For Jesus was baptized, and he instituted the supper with his disciples. He then ordered them to baptize those who believed the gospel and to regularly remember the gospel in the supper celebration. And both of those activities, baptism and the Lord's Supper, picture or they symbolize the gospel. And so, Emmanuel, that's why, that's why the supper is an essential church mark. So, We've reminded one another of this fact. Let's now consider what Luke's gospel reveals regarding this ordinance. And I believe there are at least four things. But the first is this. The Lord's Supper is worship. The Lord's Supper is worship. It's an act of worship as revealed, I believe, by the event that it supplanted, the Passover. Our text opens there, verse 7, with Luke noting how the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed had come. And Jesus sent Peter and John to town to make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So for those unfamiliar, the Passover was a highlight of the Jewish religious year, of the some nine festivals that marked the Hebrew calendar. Passover was the first of three that in the New Testament time required all the men to journey to Jerusalem. 
Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He recorded how this annual festival often swelled the city's population, Jerusalem's population, to some three million. So it's in some ways like Ocean City in the summertime, just population explosion. It's a figure some recent historians contest, but the point remains this was a major religious event. Because in the Passover, families remembered God's liberation of Israel from Egypt, hearkening back to the days of Moses and God's deliverance of Israel following the ten plagues. The Passover was the event by which God identified his people and where the blood of the lamb, so referenced here in our text, verse 7, was painted then onto the door frames of the people's homes to distinguish them from their Egyptian captors, such that when the Lord's angel moved through the land, bringing death to all firstborn, he would see the blood and pass over that house. Passing over that house. And this is the festival then had a significance. It was a celebration of deliverance or a celebration of salvation performed not by individuals. It was celebrated by gathered families where the lamb sacrificed was so for the entire family. One lamb per family. There weren't multiple lambs, only one and its blood sufficient for all those gathered in that house for the worship of Yahweh, the God who saved. And so as Jesus took those elements, this familiar feast, he didn't replace their significance, so to speak. He, he fulfilled them. He revealed to his disciples that evening how he was the Lamb of God. It was his body that would be broken, his blood that would be shed, so that all those he called to follow him, so those who were his family dwelling in his house, so to speak, wouldn't perish. Why? Because God's wrath would fall on him, passing over them. And so, friends, every time we gather around this table, we do so as an act of worship, where I'm defining worship with John Piper as an act that shows how much we treasure the beauty and worth of God. Worship is an act that shows how much we treasure the beauty and worth of God. And so as we fix our minds on these elements today, and as we eat this bread, as we drink this grape juice, we're demonstrating to ourselves and we're demonstrating to those who are around us, and we're demonstrating to a watching world, we belong to Jesus. We're his people. As Paul told the church in Galatia, we've been crucified with Christ. That which these elements remind us of, we've partaken of spiritually as we have been crucified with Christ. So we don't live any longer. He, Christ, now lives in us. He's our ultimate treasure. And so the supper is worship. The supper is also a reminder. The supper is also a reminder where this reality, I believe, is clearly conveyed by Jesus' own words. Verse 19, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we partake of these elements together, we're reminded not only of who they represent, but also of what he did and what was done to him so that we might be passed over. In that original Passover, participants, the, the lamb's blood spared them, if you recall. Spared them from the horror and the heartache of death. The lamb gave its life so that each family's firstborn might live. And in the same way, Jesus, God's 
lamb, his only son, gave his life so that whoever believes in him might not perish, John tells us, but have eternal life. Do you share that hope this morning? Is Christ, to use the, the metaphor here, is he your lamb? Have you recognized that you are as the firstborn? Each and every one of us is as the firstborn in Moses' day. We're condemned to die. We face God's righteous judgment because of our failure to be as he is, perfect. We've sinned. We are sinning. We're going to continue sinning against him, rejecting his will, refusing his ways and running from his word. We desire to live for ourselves. And even in those moments when we give thought to eternity, off our motivation for religious activity often only revolves around God because it serves us. We're seeking to find insurance, if you will, for our future. We're not concerned with God and His glory. So the supper serves to remind us of all that Christ did to set us free from sin. It's an act of worship. It's a reminder. And the supper is a proclamation. A proclamation. As Jesus' disciples sat around the table, Luke tells us in verse 17 that after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. Then verse 19, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In both of these actions, that which pertained to the cup and that which pertained to the bread, in both of these actions, Christ took an element and he called for his disciples to embrace it. They couldn't simply sit there as witnesses to. The very nature of a supper demanded that they participate. They took the bread and then they ate it. And they received the cup and they drank from it. And in these actions, the disciples demonstrated their association with the one who gave them to him and gave those instructions. And so in a sense, what, what Christ did by calling his disciples to partake of his body and blood was, to use a more contemporary analogy, he gave them the t-shirt. He said, here, take this, wear this, an outward expression displaying to all who will see that you belong to me, that you are mine, so they could proclaim to a watching world, we are Christ's. Because you remember, this physical reality, this was what was behind that very first Passover. In that first Passover celebrated in Egypt, the families couldn't simply give lip service to being God's children, God's people, and thereby avoid God's pending judgment, could they? No, they had to physically go out, kill the lamb, and then smear its blood on their door jams. Those were actions clearly portraying, clearly demonstrating to the watching Egyptian populace that we belong to Yahweh. We are Israel, people, God's people. And not only are they people belonging to the Lord, but then as a consequence of being the Lord's, we also belong to his people, meaning to each other, right? And that's why we withhold the celebration of the supper today from those who have yet to demonstrate their love for Christ publicly in the ordinance of baptism. Because we believe that by baptizing or being baptized, this is what the scriptures teach officially unites us to Christ's body. This public display that we are Christ's and we belong to Christ. The Lord's 
Supper is a proclamation that we belong to Jesus and to his people. Do you? In our celebration this morning, we don't require that you only participate if you are a member of our church. But we do ask that you only participate if you are a baptized follower of Jesus. Because it's only then that you can proclaim all that the supper symbolizes. It's only if you've been buried with Christ and risen to new life that you can celebrate that which is symbolized in the gospel that we remember together. So the Lord's Supper is worship. It's a reminder. It's a proclamation. And then fourth, the supper is spiritual nourishment. The supper is spiritual nourishment. And I believe we see this fact portrayed by the the elements themselves. You notice how Jesus took food and drink. These are nutritional components that are essential for sustaining human life. He didn't take rocks or or sticks or, or even clothing like I used in my earlier analogy. He didn't use these things, these other physical material things to constitute this celebration. He made it a meal. He made it about that which keeps us alive, which I believe expresses the value of Christ in nourishing our life in him. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He asked, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks or reference to the celebration of the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, the elements that are there, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So Emmanuel, when we come to the table, we do so, I pray, declaring to our hungry souls and to those who are watching that Christ is our only hope for sustenance. Only Jesus can satisfy my heart's hunger. Only Jesus can quench my soul's thirst. We come to this meal to as... David sang in Psalm 34, 8, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who finds refuge in him. Just as eating and drinking are nourishing and then they sustain life. A question, what are you eating and drinking spiritually? Where's your soul being fed? And I pray that it's in Christ. And just to make clear in light of this point, Again, this meal is, is merely symbolic. It's a spiritual reminder. We, we don't actually feast on Christ's body or drink His blood. And those were confusions that plagued the church when the Reformers set about reorienting its essentials around the gospel. Now sadly, I'm sure many of you know, the Roman Catholic Church continues to espouse this belief that during the Mass and the priest's consecration prayer, the bread and the wine miraculously become Christ's body such that the bread ceases to be bread and the wine to be wine. The Lutheran church follows Luther's direction and they speak of Christ actually being present in the supper, but the bread still remains bread and the wine, wine. Our belief, though, is that these elements, as we said, are merely symbols. They're emblems of Christ's real body that was crucified in history, but at present, he's at the Father's right hand. And so we deny the literal presence of Christ in the supper because of something Jesus said. In John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 63, after calling all of those who were listening to his sermon to eat his flesh and drink his blood, shocking words that caused many that day to abandon 
their pursuit of Christ. After saying those things, Jesus declared these words. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, Jesus said, are spirit and they are life. Not literal, not flesh, they're spirit and life. And so in keeping with Jesus' words, we hold that our feasting around this table is that. It's merely spiritual, if it's appropriate to say merely as regards the significance of this memorial that we're now going to celebrate together. But before we, before we do, I want us to take a moment and simply prepare our hearts for the Apostle Paul's admonition. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, Paul warned the church, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man or woman, he continued, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And so church, this morning as we direct our attention to the Lord's table, would you take a moment, just bow your heads and close your eyes and simply meditate on its significance. Its significance, the bread picturing Christ's broken body because of our sin, my sin, your sin. The cup symbolizing Christ's blood shed for our sin, my sin, your sin. And as we think of what this means, ask God's Holy Spirit that lives within us, we who are His people, to convict us of anything that we may need to confess, that we may need to repent of, relationships we may need to restore, apologies we may need to make, so that we might not be guilty of making light of Christ's sacrifice for sin. Silence may seem deafening. And almost without end. And yet, as we think about the significance of what this table represents, there's not enough time for us fully do justice 
to meditating upon our unworthiness for all that Christ has done for us. Father, these elements this morning remind us of the high price our salvation brought. Lord, and it's so easy to make light of something with which we're familiar. God, it's so easy to to belittle a celebration of such significance. Writing off that which is symbolic as, as merely that. When the things that it reminds us of were of the most profound ever defining time as we know it. Establishing the only way to life eternal by faith in Jesus as He revealed Himself to be God the Son. Father, we who are Your children recognize that we have been saved and that we are Yours and that that which we enjoy in this moment is life eternal with You that will continue Lord, and as we grow in what this means, as as we are made more and more mindful of what we have been given, God, this process of growing is fueled by these celebrations as we gather around this table and remind one another through our participation of that which you worked for us, which has saved us, to the uttermost. Father, we are saved. And in this sense, we are being saved. As we grow in our appreciation of being brought into union with Jesus. And God, we, because of our frailty, need be brought back regularly and reminded of what the gospel means of its complete coverage of how it has brought us into relationship with you perfectly. So there is no growing closer in the sense of distance between us for we reside in you. We've been covered by Christ's righteousness. For apart from His covering, God, we would not be allowed Your presence. And Father, as we stand in Your presence, there's peace. And You give us the strength to face what is before us. To have victory over sin. To face the reality of life in a sin-marred world where death still 
affects us all. But its sting has been removed. Again, because of Christ. And therefore, God, as we take this meal together, we ask that you again forgive us as your church. Father, forgive us for words spoken carelessly. Father, for actions we have taken that have belittled others and made much of us. Father, forgive us for failing to take opportunities that you've presented us to speak of the love we have for our redemption. Father, we thank you that our salvation does not depend upon our obedience to your laws, but, but by Christ's. And yet we ask that you forgive us, God, for our lack of love, evidenced as we disobey. Father, would you remind us that we need Jesus. He is our supreme treasure. The one for whom we would sell everything as the man in the parable that you, Jesus, told. Sell everything for that one thing, that which is Christ. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.